I've had a, a few encounters with death. Uh, I was telling someone the story yesterday of another car accident that I had where I had facial reconstructive surgery. And as I was saying, I had to go to a plastic surgeon. Uh, Doug Graham immediately said, have you scheduled that yet? I've already had it done, but I appreciate that question. Talking about encounters with death, how many of you enjoy roller coasters? See, I think I like roller coasters. I think I like, every time I go to an amusement park and there's roller coasters, I think I like roller coasters. Now, what's, what's the first thing that happens on every roller coaster? Okay, go up. No, no, that's not it. The first thing is you decide to get in a two-hour-long line with a bunch of sweaty people. That is the beginning of every roller coaster ride. So you get in that line. You think that it must be good if this many people are in line. Uh, sometimes, I don't even know what a line is for. It's just a line. I get in it. Because there must be something good on the other side. Even if it's a line to the bathroom. By the time I get there, I'll probably need it. So get in line. There's a line. I want to go. I get in line. Then you get to the end of the line. You get strapped in. The roller coaster starts to do what? That's when the regret sets in. Every time for me the roller coaster goes up, I start to feel a massive amount of regret. Why did I decide to do this? I start, if, especially if it's a big one, the slower it goes up, the more I start questioning life choices. Why did I decide to get on this roller coaster? Why did I decide to have a big lunch today? Why did I decide to wear what I'm wearing? Why, why did I decide? I start questioning jobs. I start questioning why I went to school. If I get all the way to the top and it's a long one, I'm finally thinking if my parents had put me in T-ball, I could have gone for the twins. You know, I'm just thinking all these things as I'm going up. And then the roller coaster does What? Now, okay, here's my question for those of you who ride roller coasters. My theory is there's like three kinds of people who ride roller coasters. First, there are the worshipers. How many do I have here? You're a worshiper. Okay, you ride the roller coaster, you're a worshiper. Then there are the hangers-on. Anyone here a hanger-on, right? You just hang on. Then there are the blind. Anyone ride a roller coaster and you do this? See, that's me. I get on a roller coaster. Before we go down, I close my eyes. And then it starts to go, and I'm debating with myself the entire time. You stood in line for two hours. You open your eyes. All you're getting is wind and gravity. I could have just fallen in front of a fan if I wanted that. I could have saved two hours. But no, my eyes are closed. I experienced the whole roller coaster this way. And I'm telling you this because that's what's going to happen this morning. We've been talking about 1 Samuel. We're going to spend this week in the first half of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is like a roller coaster. 1 Samuel starts off and it's going good. We started with the story of Hannah. Hannah is a woman who is fruitless in a land of fruitless people. The people of God are not bearing the fruit God wants. Hannah cannot bear fruit. Hannah turns to God in prayer. We looked yesterday about what it means to pray, to be a people of prayer. And Hannah teaches us how prayer should work. 
At the end of the story, she has a child. She bears fruit. The child is named Samuel. Hey, that's the title of the book. This is getting good. We're going to find out that God's answer to her prayer is actually God's answer to the needs of Israel. But then the roller coaster goes down. And today, we're going to be on a ride to the bottom. So let's begin. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up from the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now I'm going to skip down here to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons. The report I hear spreading from the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, would not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. We're going to talk this morning about being a people of witness. Being a people of witness. The primary call of the people of God is that we represent God before others. That is the primary call. That is the primary mission. Why does God have a people? God does not choose a people because he wants one people over other people. He chooses a people so they can be for other people. God chooses an Israel not against other nations. He chooses an Israel for the sake of other nations. God wants a people to represent him before the world. And a failure of leadership in a community means that community fails to fulfill its mission. Poor leadership leads to poor representation. And when the leadership can't represent God to the people, the people themselves can't represent God to the world. And that's what's happening here in this story. The priests are the ones who don't just oversee worship or sacrifice. The primary job of a priest is you represent God to the people, and you represent the people to God. When Israel comes to the temple, to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, they are there to offer sacrifices. Some are atonement for sin. Some are peace offerings. They're just giving thanks to God. Here you go, God. You're awesome. But that place of sacrifice is a place where the people learn the value of God. They learn the worth of God. And it's from giving God worthship that we get the word worship. This is the place of worship for Israel. Now, when you go... You're supposed to bring your meat, your sacrifice to the Lord, the best of the animals that you have. 
You are supposed to, if it is a peace offering or a fellowship offering or burn offering, certain ones you burn up everything, certain ones you only burn the fat, and then the priest gets what's left, but it's a particular thing. For example, if it's Leviticus 7 and we're talking about a peace offering, what you get as a priest is you get a breast and you get a right thigh. Or as I like to put it, the two-piece white chicken meal from KFC. That's what you get as a priest. If it is a burnt offering or others, it has to be fully burned up. The fat does, so it's crispy, not original. So here's what's happening. The sons of Eli, Eli's the high priest. His sons are overseeing the worship in the tabernacle. They are coming by, having a servant come with a three-pronged fork, and before the meat is done, they simply stick it in, and whatever they get now goes to the priest. It's not what's reserved for the priest. And here's the thing. What would happen when you were done with the sacrifice? You give the priest your portion. You bring the rest of the portion back to your family. And the ancient world, meat is a luxury item. When you go to sacrifice, you're getting food you don't get all the time. That's why when Elkanah, in our last passage, wants to show love to his wife Hannah, what does he do? He gives her more meat. He gives her more food. This is a sacrifice, but it is a blessing. By taking whatever comes up from the pot, they are actually taking food from the families of Israel. Not only that, they're not waiting for it to be burned up yet. The fat has to be burned because the fat is the offering to God. What we don't eat, God's getting. But if they're not waiting for the fat to be burned, who are they taking the food from now? God. So in the midst of worship... They are taking from the people, and they are taking from God. Not only that, they are sleeping with the women who work in the tent. Now, this isn't just a me too thing, but in the ancient world, when you go to a temple, a lot of pagan temples would have sacred prostitutes. The job of the women was to be there as a prostitute so you could exercise a fertility right so that you could have good crops come in next year. So here's what the picture is. You have priests who are using the sacrifice as if it's their meal, not God's meal, not the people's meal, and they are treating the women like sacred prostitutes. The priests of Israel have turned the center of Israel's worship into a pagan temple. It looks just like the worship of every other place. And God is not pleased. Because if Israel's priests cannot represent God, how can Israel as a nation represent God? Now, it's, it's been a kind of a truism that three of the major temptations that people struggle with in ministry are money, sex, and power. Now, this was kind of developed as a truism at a time when you have a more male-dominated ministry. I don't know if that's changing now, but money, sex, and power used to be the big three that you have to look out for. Money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. And certainly we find in this story a set of priests who are in it for the resources, the money, who are abusing the people. If the people don't give them what they want, they actually threaten them with force. And the sex is also there as a temptation. And here's the point I kind of want to make from this. This is not the main point. I just want to highlight this. When you have a leadership in the church that takes advantage of the people the same way the priests of Eli do, you are treating the church like a pagan house of worship. 
It's not just about the leadership failing personally, but you've taken the place of worship and you have disregarded and discredited God. You know what it actually says in this verse? It calls them, and this is my translation, NIV, worthless men. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Some of your translations, how many of you it says worthless men in your Bible? How many of you it says scoundrels? How many of you it says wicked? How many of you it says sons of Belial? Okay, that's a few. It's a transliteration. What the word actually means in Hebrew is without value. The sons of Eli were without value. Their job as a priest is to represent God to the people, and they are entirely without value. They are literally good for nothing. It would be better if I came to Shiloh and I did it myself than if I depended on these people. It also says they had no regard for the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, they did not know the Lord. Because how could a priest who knows the Lord actually take food away from God and from his people. Here's the thing. If you have a leadership in the church that does not know the Lord, you will have a leadership that is entirely worthless. No matter what else they get right, they will still be worthless. So what does Eli do? Eli tries to confront his sons. He tries to say to them, the things that I'm hearing about you, they're not good. You have to stop this. And this is his warning. He says, if someone sins against another, God could mediate. But who is the mediator going to be when you sin against God? And here's what it's like in the ancient world for a mediator. Typically, if I have offended someone or they've offended me and there needs to be a mediation, what I do is I go to the person who is over us. I go to the person who has more power, more value. So, Doug Graham offends me yesterday. And I want to complain to someone about that and say, Doug Graham is being mean to me. I go to Mark Gain. Mark Dean is the mediator. I need you to mediate between me and Doug, right? Who do you go to when you've offended God? Who's the higher source? Who's the greater judge? This is Eli's point. Sons, if you keep doing this, there will be no one who can mediate between you and him. But it gets worse. Eli can't stop his sons, but we find if we read on that Eli doesn't stop his sons because a man of God comes to Eli and here's what he says God has said he took your family he made you all priest he trusted you to represent him to the people and you've done so badly at that God is going to choose someone else and he says this to Eli Eli you have grown fat over the offerings there's a problem not just when we do what is wrong but when we learn to benefit from those who are doing what is wrong. The sons of Eli are stealing the food. Eli's not doing it, but Eli's growing fat from it. We can't be a church that misrepresents God, but we also can't be a church that grows fat from those who misrepresent God. God says to Eli, to his sons, this has got to end. Their call is to represent God. 
We are called to be a people of witness. And my first point is simply this. Witness begins with the worship of God. Witness begins with the worship of God. Worship means worthship. Worship for Israel centers around sacrifice. Worship for the church centers around gathering, but it is all about God. Now, typically when I say the word worship, what we typically think of is what happens on stage before the rest of the service, right? We have a phenomenal team from North Central Worship Live. They are leading us in worship. But here's what I want to argue. Everything we do when we gather together is considered worship. That's why every leader in the church is a worship leader, When we gather together in the name of Christ to sing, when we gather together in the name of Christ to give, when we gather together in the name of Christ to listen, when we gather together in the name of Christ to pray, I'll be honest with you, when we gather together in the name of Christ to eat, all of that is an act of worship. And it's worship where we show ourselves and others the worthiness of God. And if we get that wrong, we will not be able to represent God to the world. Our witness begins with the worship of God. According to 1 Peter 2.9, Israel has now been given, the call of Israel to be the priests of God has now been given to the church. We are called to represent God to the world. The church is called to be a nation of priests before the world, before God to the world. I want you to say this with me. I want you to say, and listen to the emphasis, I want you to say, we worship God. We worship God. We are called in our worship to treat God as the focus. Everything that we do has to be about God. Worship is not about who's on stage. Worship isn't even about who's listening. Worship is about God. Now say it with me. Listen to the emphasis. We worship God. We worship God. We have to treat God as God and not as anything less than God. And now listen to this. Say it with me. We worship God. We worship God. We must be in unity in our worship because our unity as those who give value to God for who God is, is essential to our witness in this world. Now, can I say something that may come across a little harsh? And I mean this in love. I mean this in love. But like the sons of Eli, sometimes we can use our position as God's people to take advantage of the very people we're called to serve. And I'm not just talking about ministers, I'm talking about the church. Sometimes we use our position to take advantage. Understand, as Christians, it is not our job to live in a world as if it's us against non-believers. We do not live against non-believers, we live for the sake of non-believers. The church is not a special interest group. The church is not a special interest group. I believe in great things like religious freedom, but I believe in them for everybody. And it's not just about us getting our own piece of the pie, because once we do that, we make it seem as if our God is just like every other God. 
If we're an interest group like everyone else, there's nothing different about us. There's nothing unique. Our temple is also a pagan temple. God alone is God. He's not a God. He is God. And we're not a people. We're God's people. And we have to represent God the way he is. And like Eli, we can't turn a blind eye to a church with a worship that is unrepresentative of God, even if we're receiving some benefit from that. Understand this. God will not allow his people to misrepresent him forever. God will not allow his people to misrepresent him forever. What portion of this text did I skip over? As it tells us about the sons of Eli, there's a couple of times it stops and it says, now Samuel, now Samuel, now Samuel. Because God is raising up Samuel at the same time that the sons of Eli are going down. God will not allow his people to misrepresent him forever. And if the people who are called to represent God consistently fail, God can raise up someone else. God will have representation in this world. And that's where we come to now, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning, then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Last verse here. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. As we come to this story of Samuel's calling, we're told the context. The word of the Lord was rare. The word of the Lord was rare. God was not speaking to many people in Israel, or many people in Israel simply weren't listening. 
Understand, the difference between God not speaking and us not listening to God is functionally the same. If I'm not going to listen to God, it's just as good as if God never spoke. So when it says the word of the Lord is rare, I don't know if that means he wasn't speaking or if that means people just weren't listening. But what happened is Samuel didn't know the Lord's voice. He didn't know what it was to respond to God. He lives in Shiloh. He lives next to the Ark of the Covenant. And he still does not know the Lord. What happens is Samuel is sleeping. He hears his name called. He runs to Eli. By the way, I said last, last yesterday that uh, in the Bible, sometimes in Hebrew, Hebrew does not have as many words as the English language. So sometimes words get repeated for effect. Because again, as you're reading the Bible, it was written with the assumption that the people would be hearing it, not just reading it. That was always the assumption. So it's written for people to hear So many times words get repeated in certain passages because you hear it again and again and again. When you leave the passage, that's the word you leave with. Last class or last class? See, I'm a professor. Last service, I was talking, the word was ask. It's kind of like this. Have you ever watched Sesame Street? Have you known Sesame Street? Every episode is sponsored by a letter of the day, a number of the day. Today, the word that sponsors this passage is the word call. Repeatedly in Hebrew, call, call, call. This may actually be where we get the notion of calling in the Bible. Because when you call someone, what, is, what happens? When everyone calls you, how do you know they're calling you? You hear your name, right? I hear my name. If my wife says my full name, I'm really being called. I need to get there. I am being called. Samuel is literally called. Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, but it's not until he's ready to listen that he hears the rest of what God has to say. Now, a lot of times if we talk about this, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Samuel's calling and it's about call to ministry? Have you ever heard that before? Okay, a few of you in here, how many know that sometimes we stop right at that verse of Samuel saying, I'm listening? What we don't go to is what God tells Samuel to say, which is, I want you to tell Eli, it's time for me to take his whole family apart. Understand, Samuel has grown up his entire life under Eli's care. Eli is his source. Eli is his foundation. And now Samuel is being told, and the first word he receives from God, go back to your source and tell them they're done. That is a hard call for a little boy to have, right? Sometimes we don't realize that the word that God gives us might not be a pleasant word, might not be a comfortable word. In fact, Samuel doesn't do it. We're told that Samuel lays there all night long. You can imagine this kid thinking in his head, what am I going to do? Eli wakes up. Samuel goes about his chores. He never mentions the message. Eli's the one who finally says to him, kind of threatening the kid, may God do to you whatever he told you he was going to do to me. Because Eli knows what God's going to say. And Samuel gives his word. Our witness begins with our worship. But our witness has to center on God's word. Our witness has to center on God's word. The church must understand that the word that God has given us is vital to our representation of God. And we actually have a word for our word, and that word is gospel. And gospel means 
Good news. But how many of you know that to tell someone the good news, sometimes what do you also have to tell them? The bad news. Imagine you're walking down the street, and out of nowhere, you're at camp, out of nowhere I come, and I tackle you to the ground. You didn't even see me coming. And you're looking at me all shaken, and I look at you, and my first words to you are, don't worry, I've saved you. What's your first question to me? From what? So if the church has a message of good news, we have to be able to explain why it's good news. We live in a time where we can no longer assume that people know that they need to be saved. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, wonderful Old Testament scholar, writes about this story of an artist, an artist from Greece who had painted this picture of a man carrying a plate of grapes. And it was such a beautiful picture, such a gorgeous picture, they decided to put it in the forum so everyone could see. And the forum was open air, and as they pointed, they showed the picture in the forum, the grapes looked so realistic that birds started swooping down because they were trying to pick at the grapes on the canvas. And the friends applauded their artist because look at what you've done. You've painted such a realistic picture. You have fooled the birds. But the artist said, no, 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 I haven't. He said, I did the grapes right. But if I had painted the man more realistically, they would have been afraid to swoop down and go for the grapes. Sometimes as a church, we do a great job of offering the fruit but we don't give people a strong enough picture of the one who offers for them to take him seriously. We do a great job of painting the fruit, but we don't do as great a job of teaching people how to take seriously the one who offers it. We have a word from the Lord. It is a word of good news, but it can also be a hard word. And sharing the word of Jesus We have to remain rooted to Scripture as God's Word. Understand, the words we speak in sharing about God are always tied to the Word of God, the Scriptures. So they're not just our Word, they're His Word. Uh, uh, My son, my son is six, and when he was four, uh, I felt convicted that I wasn't doing enough as a parent to actually teach him the Bible. Because he's four, we're having conversations, we go to church all the time, we'll talk about his lessons in children's church or Sunday school, but I felt like I should be doing more. So what I did, and, and this is not something I'm recommending for you, understand, this is an illustration, not a recommendation, but I'm a nerd, right? I'm a Bible nerd. So I went ahead and divided the Bible into 365 stories, And I attached each story to a particular day of the year with the intention that every night I would go over one of these stories that's appropriate at his age, and every year we would go over the same stories again on the same day, but now they would get a little more complex, a little more complicated as he's getting older. By the way, I tied it so that creation starts in July. We get all the way up to the birth of Jesus at December. We get through the Gospels by Easter, And then come July, we start creation again. Here's how good family camp is. My son wants to talk about what he's learning in the kids' ministry, not the Bible devotions, and family camp has actually prevented creation from happening. I have to wait till I get home and start creation. I'm off now. But here's the thing. 
As I'm doing this for him, he is picking up some stuff. Now, I'm going to give you a story, my favorite story of our conversations, but I want to stress, this is one story. It's not him every single night. You know, I don't like when parents are talking about, yeah, my child's talking about nuclear physics. He's three. He's not. You know, I don't believe that. So this is going to make him sound really good. He's great, but this is not our conversation every night. Understand that. This is one time. So one time, I'm going over the story of Elijah, Elijah, who goes to meet with God, and there is a storm and fire and a wind and earthquake, and yet God's not in those. And then there's that still, small voice, and God comes, and Elijah realizes it's God. So my son's listening to the story, and he says to me, Daddy, he says, so God wasn't in the earthquake, he wasn't in the storm, he wasn't in the fire. I said, no, he wasn't. And he says to me, so if God wasn't in them, why would God send them? My wife, who's listening to the story, looks at me and says, yes, Daddy. If God wasn't in them, why would God send them? And I do the brilliant parent thing. I'm like, well, look at the time. It is bedtime. We will pick this up tomorrow. I've got to go look at some commentaries. We'll pick this up tomorrow. And my son immediately stops and he goes, oh, I know, I know, I know. And and I'm like, okay, what, what? He said, I think God sent them because he was teaching Elijah how to wait on him. Now, I'm not telling you he's right or wrong, but here's what I want to illustrate by this. He's heard so many stories about God, he's starting to predict why God does what he does. Because when we learn the word of God, it's already teaching us the ways of God. And when we know the ways of God, we will be able to discern the will of God. Sometimes I want God to give me a direct message because I want to know what to do now, but the truth is all I need is to get in his ways and I'll be able to tell his will. But to do that, I've got to know his word. And the witness of the church has to be centered on the word of God. Now we come to our last story, and this is where the roller coaster hits the very bottom. 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Israelites are fighting the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a sea people, likely from the island of Crete. They had come into the promised land and created five major city-states. Now, this was a time in Israel's history where there was not a major world power threatening them. There's no Egypt. There's no Assyria. There's no Babylon. There's no threat out there. So now it's the regional peoples who are all fighting for control of the region because they don't have to worry about a big bad. The Philistines have five major cities, but they are better organized and they have better weapons. Israel goes to face them. And on the first day of the battle, Israel loses four or 3,000 men. They lose men in battle. And Israel decides that what they need is they need to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle with them. So they ask the sons of Eli to bring the Ark in the battle. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a 52-inch by 31 inch by 31 inch box. It is a box plated with gold that has a solid gold covering. Uh, How many of you, when I say Ark of the Covenant, you immediately think of Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's the image that came in your mind, right? That has done more for the church in explaining the Ark than anything else. That Ark of the Covenant was a box. In fact, let me say this. The word ark really just kind of means box. So sometimes you think of Noah's ark, and you're like, oh, it means boat. No, God didn't tell Noah to build a boat. He told Noah to build a box. In fact, it's also the word for coffin, 
So in a sense, God also told Noah, now I'm going to send a flood. I want you to build a big coffin, and you're going to put everyone in it. It's going to float, but you can't steer it. It's not a boat. It's a box. So there is a box. Uh, When I was a pastor in L.A., for about 15 years almost, I pastored in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is a, a large city, but it's also an industry city. And there's a lot of people in the entertainment industry, right? So I had people in my church who were part of the entertainment industry. Uh, one of the members of my church was an actor uh, who was on television, a major role on a minor show. So if you hear what I'm saying here, he was a major star on a minor show. One day, he calls me. And he says, Pastor, I've just been invited to Skywalker Ranch for an event, George Lucas's place. Uh, the reason he got invited was George Lucas's middle daughter had a crush on him from television, and Lucas was going to have a big celebrity event, and he basically has three adopted kids. He said to each one of them, you can write one name on this list, and I'll invite them. So she wrote my parishioner's name, my congregate's name. So he calls me. He says, hey, it's in San Francisco. It's a seven-hour drive. I don't want to go by myself. Will you go with me? Before the phone was hung up, I was at his house with bags. Let's go to George Lucas's house, right? We get there. It is a massive, huge event. It was weird, to be honest with you, because all these other celebrities, many who are really big names, had all brought entourages. And my guy brought his pastor. And we're all put together in the same room for meals and whatever. And so they're all going around the table because you know who the big stars are. You don't know who they brought. And so everybody's somebody that's in the industry. So they're like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a screenwriter. What do you do? Oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. What do you do? They're like, what do you do? I'm a pastor and I teach theology. Okay, and what do you do? Right? I mean, I would always get skipped over. It was like Passover every single time I talked to someone. Because there's networking and I don't have anything to offer, right? I can give you Jesus. They weren't looking for that then. So I don't have that to offer. Well, the daughter of Lucas is still trying to impress my friend. So she has gotten a special tour arranged where she will take us to see the warehouse. The warehouse at the time was mythical. Now they've admitted it's there because they moved everything. But it's one place where they stored all of the stuff from Lucas's movies. The reason they would never admit it is they knew people would try to break into the ranch if they knew it was there. So she actually has a limo waiting for us because it's a big place to drive us to the warehouse. She is really laying it on trying to impress this guy. We get there. I walk in. First thing I see is the Boba Fett costume as you walk in. And I mean, I have to do everything I can to stop my 12-year-old self from hugging the Boba Fett costume, right? Go around the corner. There is the six-foot model of the Death Star from Return of the Jedi. Row after row of these artifacts, at one point, I'm looking, and I'm like, what is that? It's on the third row, and it just looks, it looks familiar. I get up to it and realize it's the Yoda puppet from Empire Strikes Back. It just doesn't have anything inside of it. Now, they told us you're not allowed to touch anything. So I've got my hands in my pockets, because otherwise I might steal. So I've got my hands in my pockets. I'm looking around the warehouse, and I'm backing up to get an image of something, and my friend suddenly grabs me, and he's like, watch out! And I turn around... And I had almost tripped over the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was right behind me. I almost fell into it. I was afraid to touch it for two reasons, right? God and George Lucas. The Ark of the Covenant was like a lot of boxes in the pagan world. In the pagan world, if you look at idols, what they're going to look like, a lot of them, the idols that you carry, there'll be a box where you could put uh, 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 sticks through, you could pick them up, 
On top of the box, you would have some form of angelic representation like angels. But then on top of the angels, you would have an image of the God. Because what it was representing was this, that we're carrying the idol just like the angels are carrying God on some kind of royal litter, like a person in a seat and you hold the seat up and everyone marches with it. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represented. But where other peoples had an idol, Israel had an empty space. There's the box, there's the covering with the cherubim, but there's nothing on top. Believe me, in the ancient world, it was obvious you're missing something. Where other people have an idol and they bring out their God, Israel just has an empty space. But it was from that empty space that God would talk to his people. So they have lost, they lost 4,000 men in one day. They decide to bring the ark with them to the battle with the idea being what? That if we bring the ark we can't lose because this represents the very presence of God. It represents God's very presence. There's no way we could lose with the ark. And I'm not going to read the passage. I'll let you read it. It's first Samuel chapter four, just for the sake of time. They bring the ark. They give a great shout because God has come into our camp. And they actually basically are saying this. There's no way God would ever let himself look like a loser. So he won't let the ark be taken. We're going to win. What happens is the Philistines hear the shout. They find out that the Ark of the Covenant is there. And the Philistines say, oh no, we're done for. These are the gods, plural, because again, pagan, who had delivered Israel from Egypt. If we don't do as well as we can, we're going to be these people's slaves. The Philistines rally in their fear. And the next day, they win the battle. They kill 30,000 Israelites. They take the Ark and the sons of Eli are killed. Eli is nervous about the ark. He's waiting for news. He has grown heavy. He is blind. He is on a chair. A runner comes from the battle, and Eli says, what's going on? And the runner says to Eli, Israel has lost. Your sons are dead, and the ark has been stolen. And at those words, Eli falls out of his chair, and it says he was so heavy the fall broke his neck. He has a daughter-in-law who's about to give birth. When she hears that her husband is dead, she immediately goes into labor. She has a boy, but she's dying because of the labor. And the nurse tries to encourage her and say, look, look, you have a son, you have a son. Your husband died, but you have a son. And she names the boy Ichabod which simply means, where is the glory? Where is the glory? How many of you, if you did not know this story before, I told you Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant to battle, you would automatically assume Israel was going to win with the rest of Israel. Right? I mean, it worked for Indiana Jones, and he's not even a Christian. Clearly, it has to work for Israel. But here's the problem. Israel thought that just because they had the box that meant they had God on their side. The box represented his presence, but they thought it would be enough because it was like a lucky charm, like a war trophy. As long as we have the box, it means we have God. Here's the question I want to ask you, Christians. Do you have a box in your life?
that you think so well represents God, no matter what else is happening, you're depending on that box. I think there are some churches that have a box that may just be spiritual manifestations. But as long as we have this happening in our church, it doesn't matter if we're representing God well or not everywhere else. There are churches who are not treating other people well in their community, but it's okay because they got prophecy. That's their box. For some churches, it's right doctrine. Now, I'm a theologian. I'm all about good doctrine. But as long as we get the words just right, as long as we get it down just this way, as long as we still have the right words, that's our box. And we know that God is with us. For some churches, I think the box is the right political position. And as long as we're able to say this, or access to power, or security, we know that we're okay. But understand this. God would rather be discredited for a time than be credited as the wrong kind of God. The box wasn't enough for Israel because Israel was not representing him well. If they had brought out the box and the box had given them the victory, everyone would treat God like he was every other God. He's in the box. The box won, Israel won. God doesn't want the other peoples to see him as nothing more than a box that you can bring up anytime you want. He would rather be discredited for a time than be credited as the wrong kind of God. And my worry for us as a church is that if we have our own boxes in our churches, we will be bringing those boxes out and we will be saying, this is what we want you to know about our God. It's this. This is it. This is all we have to offer. And I'm telling you, God will not allow that to go on forever because he wants a people that will represent him. Point one. Our worship begins, our witness begins with the worship of God. Point two, our witness is centered on God's word. But point three, our witness will be tested before the world. Our witness will be tested before the world. We have to make sure that the God we represent, the people that we are, is who God has called us to be. I want to close in a word of prayer. And I just want to pray for us as a community to be a people of witness. And then the best way I can think to close this out is we're going to spend time singing one song in worship because the witness that we have has to begin in our worship of God. So as a community, we're going to end in prayer, we're going to sing in worship, and we're going to go out and witness. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you are a God that we cannot control. You are a God that we cannot fit into a box. You are a God that we cannot tie to a box. But you are a God who is so much greater than we can imagine. And yet you have called us as your own. Lord, we want to be your people in the way that you expect. We want to be people who represent you well before the nations, before our communities, before our towns. Help us to be a people of witness. May our worship be the thing that guides our lives and let it be worship of you. Let our witness be centered on your word, Lord. And we pray that the witness that we provide to this world would be the witness that pleases you. 
We don't want the world to have an excuse and to be able to say that they didn't know who God was because of how we were. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. And we give this time of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.